basic and kind of get where you're at uh, with the sleep. So I had the privilege um, back in uh, late October and a few weeks in November to uh, run a series here with you all. And really a privilege to be invited back again to Black Eyed Group. Um, I was a pastor at uh, Hope of Christian Free Church in Evanston, Mexico for 21 years. Great wife, Lisa, uh, today ended up, uh, she passed away and moved moved up here um, and got remarried. Uh, it's a tremendous. Uh, she has been here for many of the Sundays. She's not here uh, this morning. Uh, uh, home is a really terrible headache. Um, but uh, uh, the rest of the family, uh, Aaliyah and Nadia are, are there, and we're all glad to be here with you this morning. Um, for our communion meditation, the passage is Isaiah 57, uh, starting at verse 14. And you'll notice that this verse sounds a little bit like another Advent verse from chapter 40 of Isaiah, uh, because it's all about the preparation of roads. And, and so there's this mysterious voice that says, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the roads. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. sinful greed, I punished them at the upper kiosk and hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen the Lord, and I will heal them. I will guide them and restore Those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Yet, the wicked are like the tossing sea, or one translation has that, the driven sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire. So, um, a, a Christian author named Henry Drummond once observed this about Jesus. He said, outwardly, if you look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, um, his life is very troubled. It's full of conflicts, uh, full of, uh, of tests. But even so, Christ exudes 
a sense of peace, which drew people to Jesus. And, 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 and his inner life, says John, was like a sea of peace, a great calm that always followed Jesus' And, and Isaiah tells us here that, that the wicked, the stubborn wicked, are just the opposite. Even when things are going calmly for them in their outer circumstances, it's like they carry a restless sea within their heart. It's always troubled. Isaiah says the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, which waves cast up mire and mud. There's no peace, says says my God for the wicked. In other words, the stubborn wicked will not have peace because their heart cast up muddy desires on a continual basis. Now, I did some studying and I researched on seas this past week and I learned that one of the roughest seas on planet Earth is called the Wild Eminger Sea which is situated between Greenland and Iceland. Um, now, some blame the rough waters on the strong winds that blow between those two uh, land masses, and uh, that may be part of it, but scientists actually point to a deeper explanation, literally deeper, like in the heart of that sea, the Erminger Sea. Because it turns out that two currents meet and crash together in that sea. There's the Arctic current coming down from the north uh, uh, to the south with massive, cold, dense water that flows um, off the, sh the, the uh, uh, shelf of Greenland and, the, and, and through the, 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 where the, the shelf of I Iceland meets. Now, the, the water level where that ice is, or, or where that uh, shelf is, is actually fairly shallow couple hundred feet deep, but then it, it drops, and it drops, and it drops off of an underwater gorge, and it, it drops so steeply to the, to the seafloor of the Erminger that it falls 11,500 feet. It is easily the largest waterfall in the world. Um, now, the largest above, uh, you know, water, above uh, land waterfall is the Angel Falls in Venezuela. That falls 3,200 3, feet. This is three times as big. And the massive waterfall inside the Erminger Sea has a thousand times more volume than all the waterfalls on Earth combined. So you have to picture this sea against all kinds of tossing swirling water underneath the surface of the sea that guarantees that the surface itself is never peaceful. It's always churning. And God says, the wicked are like the Erminger Sea. There's no peace for the wicked. Maybe you can make their circumstances calm for a while, but there's a storm inside. The inner realities of the wicked heart guarantee it's never going to be okay. You know, 
think we, we recognize this, don't we? That sometimes we, we might say, I, I can just get the outer circumstances of my life to settle down. I will be at peace. But uh, unless there's a peace inside, unless our heart is at rest and content to some degree, we'll carry a storm inside of us. And, and so we shouldn't just think of peace as an absence of conflict. That's part of it. But biblical peace is so much richer. It involves the presence of harmony on all sides. There, there's harmony with God above. There's harmony with the people right next to us, our neighbors. But there's also harmony of our desires within our heart. What some teachers call a well-ordered heart that loves the right thing in the right way to the right degree, with the right kind of love. And when our hearts are loving things in the wrong way, we create, we, we have turbulence in our life, and we create turbulence in our life. And, and, and one of the big examples of this within the passage is the sin of greed. God says in this passage, I was enraged by their sinful greed, which means that they loved money too much. It, they treated money as though it were God, as though money could supply the security and the joy and the peace that only really God can bring. Tennessee Williams, who's a writer and a great friend, she, she writes, They think that one of the things they can buy is eternal life, but it can never be. It can never be. C.S. Lewis says something similar. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel for our spirits that our spirits were designed to burn. There is no other fuel. And that's why it's no good to ask God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about Him. God cannot give a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it's not there. No such thing exists. And that's why this great theologian, Augustine, that's why he prayed at the beginning of his famous book, The Confessions, Oh God, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's where we find our peace. Now, proud sinners, like some of the wicked at the end of this, this passage, they disagree. They, they feel sure that peace and prosperity is just one purchase away. They, they never notice that as soon as they buy that one thing that they, that, that, that they said, this is going to give me uh, my, my, my peace, they're restless again. And, and, and God is saying that greed is the turbulence that will keep their heart always discontent, always restless. They're soul is eternal and it has eternal hungers which money which is temporal will never satisfy their soul will only be satisfied when it tastes of something eternal of God himself 
Now, in Isaiah 57, there are two types of sinners. There, there are stubborn sinners fully committed to sinful pathways like greed. And they just keep one purchase after another after another, and they never learn. And then there's another type of sinner, the broken sinners, the lowly sinners, who see the folly of their path, but they're powerless to get off the path. These people feel the grip of greed. They know how greed provokes God, but they can't seem to stop. And they feel lowly in spirit. And and they feel a sense of hopelessness because they know God is holy. And so you can even get a sense of their objection because God speaks to it. Their objection is, if God's so high and holy, why would he want to associate with someone lowly and broken like me? With a low life, so to speak, like me. This is a question that we find throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, which is that famous book in which God is seen in his holiness in chapter 6. And so later in, in Isaiah 33, the same kind of question gets asked, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's a reference to God, the Holy One who who burned at the burning bush. God's glorious holiness seems like the very biggest obstacle to peace. Other prophets talk about that. The prophet Habakkuk says, O Lord, you have purer eyes than to bear iniquity. And so it's so sensible for sinners like us to naturally assume that a high and holy God would only want high and holy friends, maybe friends with the highest angels, but with us? And so here in Isaiah 57, the holy God assures us, I have friends in low places. He says in verse 15, I I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And I live And I dwell with them in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I I just think it's so remarkable that God takes it on himself to remove this obstacle that prevents us from dwelling with him. It's God who does it. Again, notice verse 14. There's a voice, a mysterious voice that's calling for the building of a road. So that the king can dwell with his people. Now in ancient times, if your king planned a visit to your region, then the whole community would say, let's gather together and let's build new roads to prepare for the coming of the king. And so you make new paths and you build better paths because you want to show your king We want friendship with you. We want to dwell with you. We desire your loving rule. That's the normal procedure. And I bet, you know, you've heard many Advent sermons from Isaiah 40 that that preach about that. And that's a wonderful Advent message uh, about how we prepare for the king who comes to us. Here in verse 14, we actually have something that's a little different. It's, it's much more reflective of what we heard about in the Jesse Tree reading. 
Because here, it's the king who builds the roads. Here it is the king himself who comes down from heaven to earth to remove all the obstacles that prevent relationship with him, who destroys the barriers that separate him uh, from dwelling with us, his people, as a friend will dwell with a friend. And, and it's as we have to picture, as, as the book of Hebrews does, that there's a servant who comes before God and says, I have come to do your will. Here I am. I've come to do your will. And God says, I want you to go from heaven to earth to make peace. What will that involve? Well, the plan is unveiled in Isaiah 53, just a few chapters before. We learn that God's plan of peace involves a substitute a special servant who will come to earth to represent God's people and carry their sin for them. Isaiah 53, verse 5. The servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the punishment of us all. Jesus said, I've come to do your will. And the heart of that will is, I will be the substitute, the suffering servant. I will come down and serve and bear the punishment our sins deserve at the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so notice that the, there's a twofold exchange there. The servant not only takes away, you know, takes our sins upon himself and then takes those sins out of existence, he also puts his righteousness and he puts it on us. And both exchanges bless us and give us peace with a holy God. In paying our penalty, God declares, you may go. Your guilt's covered. Your sin is paid for. You may go forgiven. But that's not all he says. The, the servant also gives us that righteous record. And when God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he says, you may come. You may come to me. You may eat at my table. You may come into my arms because you look as lovely to me as my son. And this is how God revives the heart He assures us that everything necessary for friendship has been accomplished. Our sins have been put away. His righteousness has been put on us. And as God revives our heart, as children of His, there's something we need to do. Not something we need to do to cause all this to happen. He's the one who's building all the roads. He's the one who's taking away all the obstacles. But there is something that fits. There's a response that fits, and that is 
more contrition, a, a more tender appreciation for what he has done for us. John Newton, remember he was a slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace. He has another song in which he has this line. He says, with pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy and live by him I killed. That's what we do when we have communion, right? We live by him. We're nourished by the one who's, who took our sins and died for them. And, and so we have a joy, a great joy, a great praise, but it's, there's also a grief, a, a pleasing grief, a mournful joy. And, and, and it's such that we want to change. We don't want to be stubborn anymore. Think about Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus met Jesus, he was transformed from someone greedy into someone generous and ready to do justice. He said, look, Lord, it's so great you're coming to my house. Look, Lord, if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will restore to them four times the amount. I'm going to go bankrupt today, but that's okay because you're coming to my house. He's full of Jesus and free of greed and hungry to make things right. Jesus declares, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Psalm 51, David talks about the spirit of contrition. He says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Accomplished people, put together people, naturally despise the broken. Write them off as losers. But if any of us look before God and feel like, I'm kind of accomplished, God, you're really lucky to have me. Um, we don't quite see his holiness as we should. God says, I dwell with the broken. I dwell with the needy. I dwell with those who, who want my guidance and, and my nourishment and my healing. Verse 18, I have seen their ways, but I will heal. Part of our healing comes when his peace rules our hearts. And, and when that happens, it, and it's a process, increasingly we begin to love the right thing in the right way to the right degree with the right kind of love. So, um, with money, we begin to treat money as a servant, not as a savior. Christ himself is the true treasure of our heart. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to ask you, are you contrite? Do you feel sorrow for how your sin broke your Lord? Does your sorrow move you to hate your sin and hunger for righteousness? The old Puritan Thomas Watson claims that a repenting heart is the best heart to receive the broken bread and the shed blood. He says, a broken heart and a broken Christ fit well together. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we will taste in Christ.
May we all taste the sweetness of Christ this morning. At his table, he will restore comfort to all who mourn, and he will create praise on our lips. We will dwell with our Emmanuel in the peaceful way that a friend eats with a friend.